Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And you know, it's the last show of the day, Mr. Campbell, and I got myself... For recording. Yeah, last show for recording. I got myself a nice little glass of Old Forester bourbon. Got a bevy, dear. Doesn't that sound delicious? Got a bevy. Yeah, it's still, it's, you know, the challenge being on the West Coast is still oh, early afternoon. Right. I do this. I don't do anything else. <laughs> you just had lunch. Yeah. Yeah, basically, you know, right. so. Well, excuse me. Cheers to everybody. I got a cup of tea, so here, I'll cheers you back. All right, very Clink. good. Clink. Good enough. Good enough. I have something really fun and really stupid for a better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so you know, there's all these products out there, and they're software products, they're hardware products. Everybody strives to come up with a name. And so typically, names of products that stick are, they, they look like familiar words, but they're spelled wrong, and you never know how to pronounce them. I right. kind of think I know what this is, but how would you pronounce K-N-O-C-K-I? Noki? Noki, you know, like the stuff yeah. that you eat, that potato that would pasta, be, right? That'd be noki, wouldn't it's it? It's very close to noki. It could be noki, yeah. right? It could be noki, yeah. could be nokai, could be kanaki. Like, you never know what the pronunciation is when you when you see these things, so... But look at what this device is. It turns any surface into a remote control. Cute. So you just put it on a table, and then you ha- you program patterns of taps and assign those to different tasks. So, you know, if you're too lazy to say, Alexa, what time is it? Because uh, talking is so archaic. Because talking is so difficult you oh, just tap I, out a morse code signal i'm instead. an anti-social geek man i just don't want to talk to alexa anymore <laughs> she alexa scares me she scares me man she's like you know i just want to go the weather is 68 degrees fahrenheit with chance of rain tonight you know that's it i just want to tap uh, maybe i can grunt uh, uh, uh. <laughs> You could pa- have a pattern with grunts, and that went, might do something else. And it comes in a five-pack. You could build yourself a drum set. Yeah. So, all right. Now, there is part of me that thinks this is really cool. Right. Like, I kind of like this. But you know what? I'm a rhythmic kind of guy. What if I'm just, like, at the table, and I, you know, I start tapping Lights out Lights are turning off and on. The heat's going up. Exactly. The AC's going down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Besides, what kind of authentication can you do? With knocking, somebody could just come over. You have just ordered nine pounds of sugar. Oh, no, no. You only get to order sugar if you can do the pretty shuffle. On it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, drummer, drummer jokes. Drummer jokes. Puka de paka de paka puka puku. All right. Well, anyway, that's that's what I got. It, it's kind of cool, and uh, you know, we were it's talking. Gadgety. Guys and I were talking about it. It looks pretty neat. Um, I don't know yeah. if I'd buy one, but ah, okay. There you go. Naki, I think. I don't know what to tell you. It looks. It reminds me of like that surface knob that they made the dial. Well, that's cool. I actually used that, and that On is great. Cool. Yeah, I. Yeah, I basically used it to um, if I had text on a screen and I was. I was writing an audio editor that lets you edit 
uh, spoken audio by editing the words. And you could, nice. m- you know, shuttle your way through the words with the dial. Cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I like the dial. That's actually some cool tech. This, I don't know. Not so sure. I, I think I could, I think I can make one of these with a piezo speaker and a digitizer. Like, uh-huh. There you go. All right, whatever. So, okay. That's what I got. What do you got? Grabbed a comment off of show 1179, which we did back in the August of 2015. So, dipping back a bit yeah. uh, about automating deployment. And we talked to Matt Rock about that. And it was one of the few times that we previously mentioned Packer, which I know we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, conversations don't come up too often. HashiCorp doesn't come up too often in, in general. But this was really a talk about automating deployment really in of course 2015 so it was about vms rather than containers right and how you used a combination of nuget and chocolatey and box starter and vagrant mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. could build out uh, on-demand vms and push them where you needed to and of course generated lots of comments this is a great one and admittedly it's from four years ago from sean inns who said yet another great show over the last year i've been periodically looking at the exact tool set that map was sharing with you guys and i have to say it's definitely reached a level of maturity mm-hmm. where it could be considered useful in an enterprise it setting especially in the windows space mm-hmm. matt's blog has been a source of inspiration for me to get some incentive to push these concepts to our historically very traditional id department and in the last month we've we've gone from dev versus ops to a much more DevOps mindset in some of our infrastructure teams yeah okay uh, there was a comment that Hyper-V is the other hypervisor. Yeah. And in this, in the case of Vagrant and Packer, I'd have to agree, as a predominantly Windows environment, we have struggled to get this working smoothly to, to fight the fact that MS OpenTech has a Packer fork on GitHub, which should be re- achieving this goal. And I would hope after four years, it's done now. Uh, the flip side of this is there's extremely mature support for a large number of other hypervisor and cloud providers, such as VMware, AWS, Azure, and so on. So rather than fighting with Hyper-V, we've decided to adjust our infrastructure build pipeline to make use of a more mature tech stack using VirtualBox VMware Workstation for desktop use and interfacing to ESXi vSphere, which is the virtual desktop mm. from VMware, mm-hmm. for production-grade builds of server templates. And this is still a work in progress. And I would hope after four years by now, you know, uh, Sean, you're done. Uh, if you compare this to the tool sets we use for software build pipelines, I think all the Lego blocks are there. It's just a matter of linking various environment-specific blocks together to get the pipeline you need. Mm. As an interesting aside, I found it relatively straightforward with lots of readings to cobble these tools together on my laptop to do a tech demo for an automated infrastructure build pipeline that has sparked enough interest in our IT department to ramp up full-scale as an infrastructure as code project team. Mm-hmm. So four years ago, Shaw had a major win, uh, you know, partly with this show we did with Matt Rock about showing a fully automated deployment pipeline. And things were way harder back then. Right. But it speaks nicely to our conversation coming today about how these tools have evolved. So Shaw, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there every week. And if you comment on that show and we read it on the air, what is it, the air? The digital air? The digital air. You, we have the an air, air of digits about us. We'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. Absolutely, we will. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Yeah, send us a tweet. Knock once for Richard, twice for me. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Now you just have to tell Knock Guy what the message is using Morse code. 
You should know. be able to do that pretty easily. Nakai, Naki, Naki. I don't know. <laughs> Nakai. <laughs> you still uh, still fight with that. That's just kind of silly. All right, let's uh, bring on our esteemed guest today. Jamie Phillips is a senior software development engineer and works remotely from East Tennessee because. That would be awesome. Nice. Uh, that was my commentary there. He did not write that in his bio. He has been working with .NET since 2007 after discovering .NET development in graduate school. Uh, Jamie's geology degree has given him an appreciation for large systems and processes, which has created keen interest in solutions, architecture, DevOps, and the cloud. During the day, he works on Windows, but at night, he's all about Linux. Linux after dark. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, welcome. Nice to be here. Nice to have you. HashiCorp Packer is uh, what we're talking about today. And I just took a, a cursory look over it. And um, it, it's a machine imager. It, it creates machine images, right? And my first question, of course, is uh, this probably isn't for containers because we know how to make container images pretty easily with Docker and all of that. So is this for VMs or real brick and mortar machines it's it's for any machine image so they support docker lxc lxd qmu containers hmm. um they also support like your traditional virtual machine images and they also support cloud images so proprietary formats like amazon ami nice so what is it what is it going to get you in um in the container world that we don't already have so one use case a lot of people don't really think about um, is you might not be deploying containers in your production environment. Mm -hmm. However, developers like to use containers locally. It keeps from getting your system all, you know, clogged up with a bunch of uh, installations. It's easy to change versions of software to match production. Yep. So imagine that your IT group adopts Packer. They can start building images for their, say, VMware cluster and images for Docker using the same provisioning scripts. I see. Nice. So that's the really cool thing about Packer is they separate provisioning from your builders, and your builders are the platform that you're targeting. Right. So if other, otherwise, if you were going to do it yourself, you'd have to have sef separate chef puppet scripts or whatever for for your, your, your real machines, and you'd have to have uh, Docker config files for your Docker containers. And they'd have to be different. Yep. That's that's the big advantage is that they're actually you can actually provision them the same way. So okay. you get that consistency nice. no matter what. So the the big thing that I talk about a lot is you can build Docker for local dev, you can build your VMware image for your on prem, and then you can build your Amazon AMI all from the same set of provisioning scripts. Now, there are differences between those environments you have to account for. And so mm -hmm. Packer does give you the option inside of a provisioner to say only when executing this builder, do this step or run this command this way. Mm. So you can have one set of Packer files with little cases where they differ. So one example is something that I spend a lot of time doing is building Amazon AMIs and Azure images. And the way you do sys preparation or sysprep on both those to generalize the image is different in Amazon. They require you to use their proprietary EC2 scripts to do it. Whereas in Azure, they just do it the default windows way. Hmm. So you have to account for that in your provisioning step, 
but that's a simple, you know, only if on Azure, do it this way. If you're on AWS, do it this way. But 90% of my configuration is exactly the same. Is there any difference in configuring physical machines that actually have to boot and boot sectors and hard drives and all that? You know, I've not had spent a lot of time doing anything other than stuff for hypervisors. So yeah. like physical machines, I've not spent a lot of time doing, but I'm pretty sure that if I dug into it and looked at what I, I was doing, you can create ISOs and okay. things like that, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, it's, it's pretty rare these days to do bare metal installs of anything. Anymore. No, you're right. You're right. Other than building like a VM host for on-premises. Right. You know, but if you listen on Twitter and a lot of podcasts, like people are talking about bare metal again. Because somehow bare metal's gotten sexy again. Maybe it's Kubernetes, just different enough. You know, that's you just run your Kubernetes on bare metal, right? That's right. Just like running a, a hypervisor on bare metal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't Kubernetes a hypervisor? I mean, really, that's what it is. Yeah. It's just another kind of hypervisor. So, yeah, the only thing that seems to go on bare metal these days is the variations of hypervisors, and then everything else is living in a container or a VM or whatever. Right. Yeah. Raspberry Pis, man. <laughs> they rule the world. You know, that's the – so we're having this conversation, and one of the questions I always get asked is with things like uh, user data scripts for AWS or – custom script extensions or PowerShell DSC for Azure, why would I want to build an image? I can just do my installation in this script. So then when I provision with Terraform or CloudFormation, it'll just run my script and I'll get my server provisioned. Hmm. Well, and and just the, again, you're thinking about the whole, that whole infrastructure's code that it can run through everything here. Yeah. But the, the thing people, I don't think realize about pre-baking their images with something like Packer is just startup time. If you're having to run through the provisioning when you're deploying another server, say to an auto scale group, right? That if that's a 15 minute process, yeah, then, if you're lucky. Yeah, you're, you're lucky. That's 15 minute process. Then that's 15 minutes before you can provision a server. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you pre bake the image, then you just do some basic configuration, and then there you go. You're up faster. How much faster? Whatever your provisioning time is. So if, like, yeah, for guess. example, uh, some of the images I build uh, can take up to four hours. That's doing mm. Windows updates and right. applying uh, a lot of configuration, downloading files and all that stuff. So that takes about four hours for one of my bigger images that I build. That if I were to try to do that, like on demand, that would that would not work. <laughs> mm. I could never day. keep up with... I mean, so it's just rolling more pieces together in advance so that you can shorten that cycle time up. Mm -hmm. And consistency. Like yeah. I can, I can be sure that if I'm going to provision five servers in the auto skill group or five containers, that they'll all be exactly the same because they were all made from the same image, not being kind of provisioned on demand. Right. So, so there wouldn't be subtle differences like Windows patch sets and things like that. Well, and therein lies the real panic, especially when you're trying to build scale sets or build groups of machines that are supposed to be identical and they're not quite identical. It's like now you have random failures that are super hard to reproduce. Yeah. You know, I guess I could, getting back to the whole hardware metal, I guess I could find a use case for that. If I wanted to uh, 
image uh, machines that you would use for product demos or something that somebody's mm-hmm. taking out a machine to do a demo for, you don't want that demo to be running within the environment of other stuff. You want an image, right? And running probably in, the, in a Hyper-V is going to impede performance. You need bare metal. I could see that. Yeah, I don't know. The CPU, for the most part, I see CPUs laying around smoking cigarettes is not much to do these days. It's man. true, man. It's yeah. <laughs> Mine's smoking That's, right now. Yeah. It, bandwidth seems to be the constraint, yeah. not the CPU. But uh, but I'm, 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 I get what you're meaning. And I'll show you, it's a great example, something we did at Strangely all the time, right. is that we did have a set of gold standard demo uh, machines. Yeah, you just so make you an appliance. The updated demo. Yep. Heck, you used to do that with your demos uh, uh, on stage with your suitcase yep. full of machines, right? Through thrill, you're exactly right. And for example, you know, when you have six machines to set up, you don't want to be doing that by hand Heck in no. the speaker's lounge before your session. Right. Like, life is too short. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I suspect we're in the minority, though. No, I. but, you know, we're talking about folks that are building they you know once you've spent some time in production you you figure out pretty quickly that hunting down that one machine out of a cluster of six is configured differently than the others like that's days and agony too like you're just ripping your hair out because you think it's fine and you're just getting these occasional failures so how does it work in your existing ci cd pipeline so we do the full ci cd workflow with Packer. So Packer has a validate command that kind of runs over your Packer file to make sure there's no syntax errors. And that gets ran on every check-in. So every time we make a change to a Packer file and do a commit, it runs the validation step to make sure that we're not checking any bad syntax in. And then we set up a release pipeline in Azure DevOps that we kick off whenever we want to do a new build. And it'll um, install Packer on the the container so um, if you're using a windows container in azure devops you can you can use chocolatey instead to install packer and then you just just run the commands like there's a nice add-in for packer um, already out there in azure devops um, an extension you can install and you can run your commands that way or you can just call powershell and just run the commands that you want to run and then you just set it off to build and it'll build your images. And typically how we set up our pipelines is since we're building for multiple cloud providers, we make it where you can either pass an array to build all the images, or you can just build one at a time if you just want to test one. Excellent. So yep. So it it's actually no different of a workflow than what devs are typically used to. It's just, it's getting over the hurdle of realizing that you're building a whole image. Like right. I don't think people think it's weird to build Docker files or Docker images and run and validate Docker files as part of their CI/CD. Now, you're just doing it with a different tool that can, you know, build VMware or or cloud images also. So it's, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what the, what Packer's doing that is that it need we need a separate product for. Like if it's working in the pipeline. Like, is this box starter just done better? Uh, to, see, that's a that's a really good question. I think mm. the big difference for me, and like a lot of these infrastructure as code tools, it's the abstraction. Right. So, 
Packer runs Docker now. If Docker changes, the Packer builder will be updated for the Docker changes. I don't have to really be concerned about them. And if you're somebody who's not coming from a dev background or from a container background, it might be an easier way for you to get into doing containers. I think the big advantage is, is it can be used across your entire stack. You know, whether right. that's VM, VMware, Azure, or a container, you can use the same thing. So I would say it's probably a little bit geared more toward that crowd than, say, pure developers. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, this is your classic sort of DevOps straddling the line of, is this an IT tool? Is this a dev tool? And it seems like the answer is really yes. Yeah, and I could see this for a lot of people who use maybe Vagrant. Could, right. could replace a lot of that with Packer. And then they would open up a lot more possibilities for saying that I got this Vagrant file. Well, that's great for local dev, but then I do a Docker file or I build a different image for production, whereas I could use Packer to just do it all. Well, and Vagrant's another one of the the HashiCorp tools, and we've talked about it before, but maybe we mm-hmm. should dive into it because it was not really aimed more at devs. It is. Um, I think... I think they're all, so that's kind of the interesting part. I, de- I think dev roles are changing and you're right. expected to know a lot more. Like if you look at your shows, I don't think there's so much talk about infrastructure as code and, and the cloud and a lot of the concerns that operations typically worried about. But the last four or five years, like that information has been ramping up, you know? And yes. I think this is this is one of those tools that starts filling in that gap that a dev could start using locally. And then maybe they could convince their ops team to use it um, and share that out or vice versa, because you can start producing these images that are repeatable for multiple environments. Mm-hmm. And and we all have multiple environments. Sure. And I think that's the, that's the big advantage is Vagrant's probably just good for, well, actually Vagrant is good for just developers for building, like doing local development and stuff like that. But Docker's pretty much replaced that in a lot of ways, unless you're going to use a virtual machine which I don't know of anybody using a lot of virtual machines to do local dev anymore now that we have Docker or OCI containers, should I say. So how does uh, Packer work with provisioners like Chef and Puppet and everything? And is there any overlap there? Do you snuggle up to them? How does that work? (laughs) I can't help but laugh. Snuggle up to them. Yeah, it's an old term. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, so Packer supports pretty much any provisioner you'd want to use. So Good. you can use Ansible, Chef, Puppet, SaltStack, uh, or just regular shell provisioners. Yeah. Uh, PowerShell, which is pretty much what I use. So I try to put all my provisioning steps in PowerShell scripts so I can use them manually by hand, or I can feed them into Packer to do um, to do task. And okay. then I just reference that provisioner through the PowerShell to, to load in that script to run mm-hmm. it. Um, so it, it's pretty flexible and it offers about anything that you normally are going to use. So the cool thing is, is they do offer Ansible local. So you can run it without having to need a, a remote host for Ansible. Good. You can do puppet, puppet masterless, which are chef solo, which are all better things to use in this context, I think, than trying to use a centralized server. Uh, but that's my opinion. Yeah. Right? Um, so, but yeah, you can do what you're normally already doing. So shell provisioners use the default shell on the operating system that you're using. So on Linux, that would be bash. If on windows, that'd be CMD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't recommend anybody using CMD. 
you can just use PowerShell. Yeah. So yeah. Well, we've supposedly got the new Windows terminal coming, which is going to complicate that a little bit, but mm. it'll still be calling the console in the end. Yeah, and the the thing about PowerShell is with with the way it's set up, um, it gives you a lot of flexibility in being able to reuse scripts or share those across multiple Packer files. So if you got a common right. task that you do, then you can just reuse that piece of knowledge. So you don't have to worry about writing the provisioner from scratch every time or any kind of, of these things that have uh, run books or playbooks. But Packer does not do the playbook thing. Packer is just something you, something you invoke to either make or, or fetch a golden image. So yeah, Packer can pull down a golden image or pull an image from Azure to, to build a virtual machine from. And then once right. it provisions a virtual machine, so this is a different type of provisioning. Once it creates the virtual machine uh, through the builder, it will then kick off the provisioning steps on that virtual machine yeah, mm-hmm. or, or Docker container. And then at the end of it, it will do whatever kind of generalization or sysprep that needs to happen for whatever you're targeting to generate your new golden image. And you mentioned sysprep, which maybe we should talk a little bit about. Just this idea that if you take a snapshot of a machine, you don't want to run a perfect copy of a machine, right? You, you actually need to do some differences. Yeah, because if if you don't sysprep a machine, it's going to have the same name. Yeah, uh, a lot of configuration user profiles are already be configured, and if you're building marketplace images for Azure or Google, you know any cloud provider, you can't have pre-existing profiles already loaded on there. Yeah, most of the time their security is going to flag that as you being malicious or potentially wanting to to hack your users. So if you're trying to package up your company software. Um, you're definitely going to want to run that sysprep step, whether you're on Windows or Linux. So it's a generalized image, and it doesn't have any pre-installed profiles. Right. And so sysprep is about stripping all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's just an interesting piece of thinking about maintaining golden images is that they are they are countless when they're stored, and you have to then put them in when you, uh, when you set them up. Yeah. And... That's a that's one annoying difference when using Packer with multiple cloud providers has been how they treat the different accounts. So if yeah. you're familiar with AWS, you're administrator by default, but in Azure, you actually define the account you want to use. Yeah. Right. And so when you're say building stuff with SQL Server, even those base images are configured differently. Mm-hmm. Window on Azure, Windows um, SQL Server doesn't have the administrators group enabled by default. So it's just that name user is the admin of the, of the SQL server. Whereas on AWS, they're actually using the group. So you have to enable the group whether you needed it or not. Yeah. And I had some really fun, a lot of fun to Packer trying to figure out how to make it to where it's going to be generic. Maybe not necessarily a, make it a group and you're the user and you're trying to remove yourself from the database. That's, that's kind of fun. That's a great moment. Yeah. No, I, I hear the pain in your voice. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, um, I, PS there exec we, I know there's some suffering here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. PS exec will get you out of that spot. PS exec. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's the, a tool uh, that PowerShell. Will, yeah. For PowerShell that will yeah. allow you to execute a PowerShell script on a timer as system. So um, you can, get, you can remove yourself from a SQL server if you want to. Right. That's good. That's a Marcinovich tool. It's part of Mm -hmm. Mm Sysinternals. 
Yeah. And it's, there's lots of interesting things around that. Um, chocolatey, it would be cool to see a chocolatey provisioner. Yeah, I was just thinking I guess you that. could do it from PowerShell, but it would be cool to see one just kind of baked in for, for Windows images. There actually might yeah, be one good. out there. I have not searched. So Packer does have a plugin architecture, and one of the plugins I use regularly is the one for running Windows updates. Right. Uh, Windows updates requires a lot of restarts, and it takes a while. And if you're just doing that with Packer out of the box, sometimes it can lose connection to the server and it'll kill the Packer session and Packer will fail. So look around for plugins for things you're doing because that'll make it a lot easier sometimes because people have done the really hard work Mm -hmm. of of figuring out how to do the system restarts that that you're going to need when you're doing updates or, you know, installing software that might be tricky. It's done at rocks. I'm Richard Camel. It's my friend, Carl Franklin. And we're talking to Jamie Phillips about HashiCorp's suite of tools. We've really just been talking about Packer so far, although Vagrant got a mention. But there's a bunch of others. The, the HashiCorp guys have been trying to make it easier to use the cloud long before anybody else, really. I mean, DigitalOcean, they get, they're, they're the back at the very beginning of the cloud. Yeah, HashiCorp makes all kinds of tools. Um, another tool that I use almost every day of theirs is Terraform. Yeah which is their cloud provisioning tool. So specifically for for provisioning stuff in whatever cloud, any cloud? I think there's currently, I want to say there's 100 now. Maybe that's off. Let me go look. Wow, I didn't know there were that many clouds for starters. Um, So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying there's over 50 providers for Terraform and it's not just cloud as you think of it. There's ones for ESXi for VMware. Oh, right, of course. So, so, so you can instrument VMware. There's ones for things like one in one for DNS management or DN Simple. Mm-hmm. Um, there's ones for Cloudflare. So maybe things that you might not think of as cloud providers, but people that are yeah. providing software as a service. It's still, stuff you want to be able to provision, like. Being able to poke into DN Simple and and set up a set of uh, of uh, DNS entries for for an app that's a huge thing. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the biggest struggle I've always had with trying to automate as much as I can. Is there's always those things that you can't automate, and you know with a tool like Terraform, and I think Plumey's really coming on pretty strong with with their offering lately to offer mm-hmm. that same kind of um, experience. Is that I can now provision multiple pieces of software across multiple clouds. So if I need to provision across multiple clouds, I can use one tool to do it all. Nice. That's the thing people lose with Terraform is they feel like it's not right once run everywhere. But the advantage is it's one tool in one language that you can write specific for each cloud. So that does take some overhead away that a lot of people don't realize that they have when Mm. trying to do cloud formation and ARM templates, which I really don't wish on anybody. Yeah. Um, so it's just too much JSON. And while Terraform can do JSON. <laughs> just too much JSON. You know, it used to be too much XML. Too much XML, too yeah. Much I'd rather have too much JSON than too much XML. <laughs> JSON. You know, my, my thoughts on that have changed lately. Really? Yeah. I used to Had enough be JSON? big on JSON and... <laughs> I realize the structure of XML has a big advantage. Uh, you you may have transcended us here, Jamie, if you're mm. missing XML. That's a whole other level of thinking. We may not be there yet. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So HashiCorp with Terraform provides two different languages you can use. So you can use their HCL, which I equate to CS, looking more like CSS than right. code. Which that's changed with version twelve. Mm-hmm. Now you actually have proper for loops, so you can actually do looping with with code instead of doing it in a very different way. And I think a lot of right. people struggled with that. So it's going to get easier for people to adopt. And then you could do JSON. And I, I just recommend using HCL. Interesting. It's it's clean. It's simple. I, I really like it. Right. And, and I wonder if this is the influence of Pulumi, too. Because to me, Pulumi's real claim to fame was much more of a real feeling of a programming language that happened to do infrastructure as code. And HCL now, you're talking me in V12 here, it seems to be headed in that same direction and possibly for the same reason that you know, now that you've said it, now that you've planted the seed in my head, Jamie, that XML is not automatically bad, it's that we're now getting enough infrastructure as code, code, the length of code and amount of code, that that static validations and, and you know, and, and structural management are important. That, that we actually have to, you can't just read it anymore. It's too big. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things when we get to these richer languages is that they have inherent validations and typing and static assessments and and, uh, assertions that help us have a sense that this thing's going to work, that it's nothing dominant. You're not missing a space or, or heaven forgive, a a curly brace somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. And you just made me think about how the fact that infrastructure as code feels like it's probably shifting more to development yeah i feel like the expectation is that more developers are participating in infrastructure as code maybe to the point that they can do basic changes or maybe owning the whole infrastructure and if it's in their language or it's in a language that they're kind of used to then it makes it easier for them to adopt that whereas Mm -hmm. i don't know if jason or yaml or anything like that's really in anybody's full house like what they're used to (laughs) but well and you know so you the and the the strength of XML. I love that I said that in 2019. <laughs> were things like schemas, right? That we could have validating documents over top of them to say, "Is this coherent?" Which you know we and, and which we learned we came to hate for various reasons. And Jason went away from all of that, right? Just this ultra permissive model, which means often you run these elaborate scripts and they they fail in that they don't do what you want them to do, but they don't fail in the idea that they point at something and go, what the heck is this? Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing with adopting any of these tools, you know, and I think sure. ARM and cloud formations makes that difficult sometimes to actually know what fails. And understanding the strange rules and constructs you have to do in JSON to, to make it work, like trying to loop or, or reference something. Whereas if you're, like Plumy or, or Terraform, you know, you got you starting to get more constructs around things that you're going to understand more easily. And it's not right. as esoteric, I guess, is the way to put it. And thinking back to the conversation we had about Plumy uh, before when, the, when uh, Luke Hoban came on, I also got the sense that it, you would end up with fewer, more elaborate scripts that that one of the things that's happening with a lot of these tools is we're getting a script proliferation problem. And a lot of it is cut and paste code, which means when you want to make a major change, you're sort of going all over a whole bunch of scripts to try and fix them up and creating a, a abstraction over that would actually help us 
to write fewer scripts that, that follow the same set of rules. Yeah. You know, Terraform does offer a module system mm -hmm. and I think it's much improved with version 12 and I think it's going to be a lot easier to use. One of the big gotchas with their module system, it's kind of clever how it works is the fact that it's structured exactly how you would structure a regular infrastructure as code project. It right. follows the same naming standards and conventions. It's just a module. And the problem with there was when you used one across multiple projects and it's hard to version sometimes, or you didn't think about versioning, then if you made a change there, it would affect a bunch of infrastructure. And I feel like with, with these other models and some of the models they're moving to, it's mm. a little bit more isolated mm. and reusable in a way that is going to prevent you from getting in that situation. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 You do want some consistency, but you also want to control when you make changes too. Yeah. And that's, that's been a, a big thing with like state with Terraform, you know, is controlled by the version. So if you upgrade the version for one project and you're using a shared state store, then everything kind of gets upgraded to the new version. Right. So you kind of have to be prepared for that too. But I, I think I have a lot of the tools I've used and I've been wanting to spend more time with Pulumi. Hmm. Terraform by far is my favorite so far. And it's because they provide a lot of, a lot of providers. So, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, all the cloud providers, but they also provide yeah. stuff for VMware, Kubernetes. So you don't have to write YAML anymore for your Kubernetes configuration. You can just write HCL if you prefer it. Are there any gotchas, hidden gotchas using Packer that we haven't talked about? I mean, it can't be all sunshine unicorns, right? Or can it? Hidden gotchas with Packer. I think the biggest thing with Packer that's kind of a gotcha Really, there's two in my mind. Um, one of those is around the differences between the providers and not knowing those right away, mm. like knowing that you have to provision uh, EC2 AMI with um, with certain user data scripts. For example, AWS AMIs don't have PowerShell uh, remoting enabled mm. by default. Mm. So you have to configure that or, or Packer will not run the provisioners at all because it can't make right. a, a remote connection. And then the other one tends to be around uh, cloud providers maybe not supporting certain technologies or transitions. That's been a tough one. That's been a gotcha. And that's really around things like as you're doing the VHD to managed image transition and how right. not everything in Azure supports managed images right away. Like, for example, you can't submit a managed image to the Azure Marketplace. You have to submit a BHD. Right. And and so that's that's some gotchas that, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of rework if you don't know going in with Packer. Besides that, I've not, I've personally not experienced a lot of, a lot of gotchas with it. When you did mention earlier about things like SQL Server and the security constraints, these different, you can take this image and put it on different hosts, and sometimes the security behavior will be different from implementation to implementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's mainly starting with their base images. So that's right. the, yeah, and and that's what surprises me the most is they're both produced by Microsoft. I'm surprised they're so wildly different. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a different team, right? Yes, that's yeah, that's always be. the answer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there was an Azure team and there was an AWS interop team and they did things differently. So with Packer, I've not experienced a lot of gotchas. 
to be honest. And my use case is pretty vanilla. I've not pushed it to to its limits. But I think for most people, vanilla use cases fit. Yeah, no, I think the standard use case makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I love the th- thought of like you're getting ready to prep a, an image that you're going to sell. You're going to put into the store in some way. And so you be able to strip it and set it up so that they, anybody can use it. Microsoft's done this a bunch of times too, where you just have pre-configured, hey, would you like to take this new tool out for a spin? Here's a configuration that you can stand up that's already got it set right so you can use it. Yeah. Do you, do you, have you been working with setups like that? Like it's a way to help people learn a product? That's primarily how we use it right now is we take yeah. a lot of our, our shrink wrap software, I guess I can call it that, and we package it up for for you know trial purposes or get quick get started quick with our product in azure or aws so that way you can just spin up an image and everything's already configured you just need to put in a little bit of information and you can rock and roll yeah it's a shrink wrap if it's just been deployed from a store no plastic was harmed in the making of this sale (laughs) well i I don't know what you call that right because it's yeah no i think it's a great question right store yeah i call it a bunch of electrons yeah yeah, strategically arranged. <laughs> I'm going to take a look at this set of electrons, and I'm going to tell you about them with some other electrons, and you're going to make a copy of those electrons, <laughs> yeah. and then make changes to them. This is our job. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, though, I mean, the use case fits that if you wanted to ship an on-prem installation with a container or a VMware or a Hyper-V for any of your customers, plus put it right. in all these marketplaces, then you could do all that with Packer right. and save yourself a lot of time. And that's that's a good thing. And not everybody needs to know how to do it because they can just go into your CI/CD pipeline and just kick it off with the new version number. For sure, and yeah. it could just go fetch it all, do the installation. So, and when other store opportunities appear, then you just add that to the pipeline. It's just another part of the process. Yep. I'm just hoping no more store opportunities appear because ah, stores are awful. Well, man, Packer is so cool. It must cost thousands of dollars, right? <laughs> it's. It's all free and open source. No. <laughs> now you're just talking crazy, That's crazy Dr. talk. Phillips. What's that about? How is that possible, man? So, um, <laughs> do you contribute to the to the repo? Are I've you in been there? I'm doing a little bit of contributions as far as like bug reports um, and a few things here and there. I, I really have got a desire to learn Go because mm. everything HashiCorp pretty much has is written in Go now. I think everything's wow, written in Go. That's cool. Go is so, cool. Yeah. But it's also like this suddenly gives me a sense of if I wanted to learn Go, this is to go look at some serious Go code. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Terraform's the same way. I've submitted a few things to Terraform here and there that I could do pretty easily. Some of those have been like documentation updates. Um, and that's the, that's the biggest thing for anybody that starts using these products. The documentation is tricky for all of them. Sure. They, they follow hmm. a pattern, but it's not logical, at least in my mind, how it works. So, Things that are cross-cutting concerns are in a different part of the documentation. So if a property is available on every um, provider or on every provisioner, then it's in a different location and it's not on that specific provisioner's documentation page. Uh, so if you, so I'm thinking like a dev here, right? That yeah. Oh, it inherits from this, then all the properties will be there. But in their documentation, that's not how it's displayed at all. Right, so you have to look at the base implementation, and then you look at the platform-specific implementation. Yes, to actually get a complete list of, of attributes. Yes, and that's my biggest gripe 
mm-hmm. um, with with their documentation is that's kind of how it's set up. Yeah. So you have to know that and think that way to to find your way around. I mean, if you fix it to put everything in one place for a given implementation, you are duplicating a lot of stuff too. Yeah, but it should be a generated, right? Yeah, it should be generated, or it should be almost. You know, it's like here is stuff that's unique to this implementation, and below that is, by the way, from the main set of docs. This is all the standard set. Like the, it, this could just be a visualization problem they've got. Yeah, it is. It is. You hit it right away, like a visualization problem. It's just yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. You shouldn't have to look in two places because I also could think immediately if you took the the standard list plus the implementation list and mixed them together, people are annoyed. It's like, well, which one of these is really related to my implementation? So you do want to keep them separate, but if you look at one, you should see both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least a link, right? Because that's yeah. a, a warning. <laughs> this is not everything. There's the base limitation. Well, I appreciate this, man. This is interesting stuff, and I do think we've spent enough time on what HashiCorp's done building out these suites of tools. It's very cool. How do these guys make a living if they give away such good code? I got a feeling they're going to be bought by somebody for too long. Uh, so they're maybe just, not just a matter making of time. money. I mean, there is the enterprise products, right? Yeah, which is mainly, I think, around Terraform, Council, Nomad, Vault. Right. Which we, we didn't talk much about Council, Nomad, or Vault. Um, no. We talked about Vault recently on uh, yeah. another show. They're tough things to talk about. Like the, yeah. It gets really complicated really fast. And Vault's like, I don't know the use case for your regular like dev team. Like having to have three people unlock it to do something. Like, yeah, when would you use this rather than Azure Key Vault if you're just working in Azure? Yeah, that's. I've been trying to figure that out. Yeah, but I but I will say it doesn't have the problems I've run into Key Vault lately. Key Vault <laughs> has problems. What do you What do you mean? Uh, I got two annoyances with Key Vault. So one of them is they don't put labels on their firewall rules. Oh, so so I don't know what the IP address belongs to. Hikes. So I gave it permission. I don't. I don't know what it belongs to. So I got. I got that on their backlog. And then um, the other one that I noticed today, well, I ran into today, was if you're using managed identities in app services, you can't. The allow trusted Microsoft services don't support general access to Key Vault. It mm-hmm. only supports app service access to Key Vault for the purpose of certificate certificates. So, um, you have to explicitly add your app service IPs hmm. to, to the Key Vault firewall rule if you're using the which firewall. You may or may not have control over. Yeah, which could change. Not that they mm-hmm. will change, but they could change. Yeah, you do, you're not getting control of it, so it's probably yeah. going to change at some point, and you're going to be you're going to have a riot trying to figure out why you can't lock, why your app doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it it will. It's just a matter of when. And and there's 16 of them. So if I have multiple app services trying to get to one key vault with 16 each yeah, and I don't have labels to tell me what they're for. Yeah. Mm. I hear yeah. the pain in your voice again, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> We're old guys. We know this pain. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I think that's the thing with like Packer. People don't realize the pain that it solves. Yeah. Because I think. I think back to like all the IT departments I have, they're like, well, we got golden images, but let me spin you up a VM and I still got to run Windows updates. Well, if you had Packer, you could just schedule it for, you know, the second Wednesday of every month or whatever to just build you a new golden image. And then you're guaranteed to have, you know, two or three weeks maybe of updates to apply, not 
months. Hmm, nice. Which is something we didn't talk a lot about. It, it's kind of weird for this show, you know, for developers and, and talking about Packer, but I think, you know, I'm coming from it from a developer perspective that's got into operations. Right. And I see the values. A lot of people want their dev environment to look like production, but it can if you're using containers and deploying to AWS EC2. Right. Yeah. But you can make it as close as you can by having it produced by the same script. Yeah. Well, that's the point of infrastructure code, right? It's like we're all running the same script, just different influence. Well, Jamie, thanks very much. Uh, it's it's a very cool product, and uh, thank you for exposing our audience to it. Thank you for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a